guys so much. Oh my gosh, I love the picture. I was worried I was going to be in a collar, and I just want to say that I'm relieved I'm not. Um, so why don't we start with a prayer? <clears throat> Gracious and loving God, you tell us what the gospel is. A sparrow in a storm who finds shelter. Lord Jesus, we pray especially for the one who preaches and speaks this day, as you know her sins are many. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, I spent every summer of my childhood in the Mississippi Delta. My parents both grew up there. My grandmothers were there. So I, I spent a lot of time with extended family. And when you say uh, the Mississippi Delta, I know for a lot of people it conjures up these really great images from Anthony Bourdain's show, um, which sounds so cool. Like maybe we went to blues clubs and we ate barbecue and we talked about Faulkner. But we didn't do any of those things because I mostly hung out with my grandmother, who is a godly woman. So we mostly went to church and to funerals at churches, and occasionally we went to the Piggly Wiggly. Um, I was thrilled as a child when someone would die in the summer because it meant that we got to go somewhere. Um, so almost every single summer, uh, somebody, a, usually an elderly relative cousin in Arkansas, would die and we would drive across the bridge from the Mississippi Delta to the Arkansas Delta. And we would sit in a hot, primitive Baptist church and mourn the passing of yet another family member. And for me, one of the most thrilling parts was that they would have the elderly dead person like propped up in the coffin, surrounded by funeral wreaths. They were often a lot like this funeral wreath. We have very demonstrative funeral wreaths in the South. I don't know if you've ever seen these. Yes. These are all I'm going to have at my funeral. Um, so they always have these, and they are very serious. So if you just laughed, you should feel bad about that. <clears throat> this is actually, I had such a hard time finding a picture of this. It's from a website called Ignorantics which I take personal offense to, but. So these were the kind of funerals where, where you stayed all day long. It was an event. Um, after the funeral, you headed to the family cemetery and you stood there while they fully lowered the casket into the ground, which was thrilling for a seven-year-old. And then a man, usually the preacher, would kind of prop his foot up on the nearby tombstone and say, you know, we got lunch back at the church, Louise made some of her pies, and everybody would load up and go on back to the church. We'd sit around, and we'd tell stories about the dead. We would laugh. I remember a lot of crying. And we'd be genuinely grateful that this person had gone home to be with Jesus. They often had hymn sings after these funerals. So somebody would sit at the piano, and we would yell out songs for them to play. And um, I marvel as I'm saying this that I'm an Episcopal priest now. It's crazy. But anyway, 
Um, we always, always sang Blessed Assurance, which is a song very close to my heart, and it's actually not in the Episcopal hymnal. Um, if you listen closely to this song, it is really a song about dying. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight, angels descending bring from above, echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. So I try not to make a practice out of romanticizing the religion of the South because we have our problems. But the funerals of my childhood and the stories that were told at those funerals about living and about dying and about Jesus, they were spot on. Because back then, death wasn't something we could catch. It wasn't something we could just avoid or outrun. Rather, death just was. It was a part of our story. And for me, the comfort in these funerals was that no matter who was being buried, no matter what story had been told, the same banner got waved. Jesus called, and this person answered. I'm starting to think that's all gone now because I haven't been to a funeral like that in years. We used to do death better when we had to, when death was an actual reality and not just something we worried about all the time. We used to die at home. I served as a hospital chaplain for a while, and it was always so fascinating to me. You know, people don't see dead bodies anymore. We used to all know we were going to die and to believe it, um, and death wasn't this edict that we needed to do more or be more or seize the day because you're going to die soon, right? We just knew that death was a part of the story. So I'm going to give you all a little bit of a history lesson. <clears throat> we used to have front sitting rooms called parlors in our homes. Lots of people had these, right? That's where we kept our fancy stuff. Um, and when people died, we did this. We put the coffin and the body out on display in the front room of your house. Imagine having real dead people in your house, and it's not a horror movie, right? So this all changed in the Civil War. Um, we started embalming soldiers' bodies to be shipped home, and these people who were embalming the bodies realized that not everyone wanted to have a dead body on display in the front room of their house, so they opened up funeral parlors, okay? So here's the crazy part. What did we start calling those front parlors in our homes? <coughs> Living rooms, because we're going to live forever, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's always dangerous to look back at generations past and think they are somehow more virtuous than we are now. They are not. They were not. They were just as ready to throw off and deny death as we are today. But we've lost a lot no longer seeing death. It's just not a part of our story anymore. Now death is just one more way for us to explain ourselves, to talk about how interesting we are, right? To be relevant. Death has become another self-improvement project. <laughs> Funerals are crazy now. 
They have become yet another arena for us to make a bizarrely personal plea that our lives were relevant, that we matter, that we won't be forgotten. I get tired just thinking about it. When we first moved to New York City, so I'm fresh off the boat from Mississippi to New York City. You can imagine how well that went. Um, I went to the funeral of a friend of a friend, and it was like everyone was drunk. They weren't drunk. It just felt like everyone was drunk. Um, there was one personal speech after another. It went on for hours, them talking about this person who died. Some of it was mean, which was strange. And just when I thought I could take no more, a woman got up and she said she wanted to sing the deceased person's favorite song. And I thought, finally, a church hymn, perhaps. This is something that will be normal for me, right? Nope. She got up and said, I'm going to sing her most favorite song. It is by a singer named Willie Nelson. And the song is called, I Go Out Walking After Midnight. Now, first of all, I about came out of my pew because that is not a Willie Nelson song. It is a Patsy Klein song, okay? Second of all, it is a song about wandering around looking for a loser boyfriend who does not own a watch, so I couldn't understand for the life of me why we were singing it at a funeral. It's actually a terrifying question to ask yourself. What would my personal funeral be like? What terrible things would people be allowed to say about me? What photos would they show? What music would they sing? What's my favorite music right now? Justin Bieber? <laughs> Grease the Musical? Right? The thought paralyzes me with fear. In the Episcopal Church, these are some of the opening lines of our funeral liturgy. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For if we live, we live unto the Lord, and if we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. It is not up to my funeral to tell the story of my life, because the story of my life and the story of my death is Jesus. It is not on me to write it, because he has already finished the book. He is my story. He is my song. Okay. Now, I'm going to complain about something that everybody liked, and I'm a little nervous about it. Um, everyone thought this was cool. It was all over my social media feed, so this is your warning label. A few months back, this wonderful woman who's so sweet uh, did, uh, her name's Candy Chang. She did a TED Talk video about a project she had done in her New Orleans neighborhood. So she started a project where people would write what they were going to do before they died, what they hoped to do before they died on the side of a wall. All of my friends loved this. Um, I did not like it at all. Um, and I know that that doesn't say anything good about me. So I'm going to let you guys just watch a, a little bit of what she did. I feel like it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day -day and forget what really matters to you. So with help from old and new friends, I turned the side of this abandoned house into a giant chalkboard and stenciled it with a fill-in-the-blank sentence, Before I die, I want to. So anyone walking by can pick up a piece of chalk, 
reflect on their lives, and share their personal aspirations in public space. I didn't know what to expect from this experiment, but by the next day, the wall was entirely filled out, and it kept growing. And I'd like to share a few things that people wrote on this wall. Before I die, I want to be tried for piracy. <laughs> Before I die, I want to straddle the international dateline. Before I die, I want to sing for millions. Before I die, I want to plant a tree. Before I die, I want to live off the grid. Before I die, I want to hold her one more time. Before I die, I want to be someone's cavalry. Before I die, I want to be completely myself. So this neglected space became a constructive one, and people's hopes and dreams made me laugh out loud, tear up. Uh, and they consoled me during my own tough times. It's about knowing you're not alone. It's about understanding our neighbors in new and enlightening ways. It's about making space for reflection and contemplation, and remembering what really matters most to us as we grow and change. For so many reasons, but I'm just going to name two right now. Um, first of all, no one thinks of this stuff when they are dying. They just don't. Um, I used to be a hospital chaplain, so I have been with a lot of people at their deathbeds, and no one says the stuff that people are writing on these walls. Every time I see this video, I see a new weird thing. One of them up there was hug a sloth. Like, yeah. nobody says that. <laughs> no one wants to be a pirate. No one talks about how they could have been a Broadway superstar. No one is sad that they didn't own a convertible. Because that stuff isn't nearly as interesting or as vital to our story as we think that it is, especially when it comes to the subject of our deaths. So people on their deathbeds, Christian or not, have said the same three things to me. I'm scared. What is heaven like? Will they let me in? And my response is just as predictable as their questions. I tell them about the blessed assurance of Jesus, the promise that he is their story and he is their song in life as in death. And that is all that I have to offer to someone who is dying. On some level, I appreciate what Candy Chang is trying to do. She is opening up the conversation about death to get people thinking about their deaths. But the second reason I was troubled by this TED Talk is that she has inadvertently made a project out of dying. This is one more place where people can up their game. I mean, I would totally look at everyone else's answers and say, like, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to try to like my mother-in-law. I'm going to be a billionaire. I'm going to marry Rob Lowe. Like, you're just constantly outdoing one another, even in a conversation about death. Also, this is hilariously and sadly such a modern people problem. I mean, I can't help but 
but be struck by that. Like, no one burdened themselves with these kinds of ridiculous death story outdoing goals before now. No one had time to think, before I die, I want to, because we were all making our own clothes and growing our own food. And now we've got all this time on our hands. And since human beings love nothing more than self-improvement projects that make us miserable... <laughs> We're all like, before I die, I want to be an astronaut superstar president of Texas, right? As Christians, we believe that it is in death that we come to know life. St. Saint, Saint Paul tells us in Philippians, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I, will not at all, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. I think St. Paul wants us to be excited about death as a fundamental part of our story. And I know I sound like that character on Saturday Night Live, Debbie Downer, when I say that. But we're already dying. Our bodies are already falling apart. So I say just roll with it. <laughs> the New York Times had this great op-ed piece in January, and the title was called, To Be Happier, Start Thinking More About Your Death. And the article began, Want a better 2016? Try thinking more about your impending demise. <laughs> so the writer says, Years ago, on a visit to Thailand, I was surprised to learn that Buddhist monks often contemplate the photos of corpses in various stages of decay. The Buddha himself recommended corpse meditation. This body, too, students were taught to say about their own bodies. Such is its nature. Such is its future. Such is its unavoidable fate. Now, this may sound very strange to us, but it is precisely what we do on Ash Wednesday when we say we are but dust, and to dust we shall return. I'm totally falling apart. My body has started to do all kinds of weird things as I careen down the path headlong bound for a coffin. My bottom teeth have started a civil war with one another. I can show y'all after. If you want to come up, I'll I'm happy to show you. Um, <clears throat> I'm told that it's because when you're pregnant, which is a thing that we do in our lives, for many women, our, uh, our bodies will pull calcium from our jaw so that the baby gets enough calcium, right? So thanks for that, babies. <laughs> um, earlier this year, my entire household got lice, all four of us. Yep. And one of the awesome side benefits was that whilst pulling bugs out of my head, my husband found my first strands of gray hair, which he sweetly pointed out. Um, also, I can't even like talk about the stretch marks I have after having given birth to two children because I put on 50 pounds with each of them. <laughs> Not 25 and 25, 50 and 50. Um, <laughs> this is a record. So judge away. Um, I wouldn't give away, give up any of those almond joys, but that 
was my reality. And they're fixers for all of this. I mean, that's true too. They're fixers for these things, right? Temporary fixers for our bodies falling apart. We can control this. We can up our game against death. We can look like we're going to live forever. I can get adult braces. I've looked into it. I have friends who have them, right? I can color my hair, wash the gray away. My grandmother was a hairdresser. I got my first perm when I was three years old, so <laughs> I could do that. And stretch mark solutions are endless. Creams, lotions, and according to Instagram, there is an entire army of women out there selling body wraps that make everything go away. But I haven't done any of this, and not for some virtuous reason, but I haven't done any of this because all of this, all of me, teeth, hair, stretched out skin, all of this ends up in a coffin, right? And that's how my story ends. And that is awesome news. So I relish in this news because none of this crap actually matters. Because I'm 33, and if I'm really, really lucky, I've got five-ish more decades, and then I get to go home to Jesus. We hear in Revelation 7 that God will wipe away every tear. And I think it's safe to assume he will also wipe away our bizarre urge to be the prettiest, most ambitious main character in the world's grand narrative. I don't have to be the best person in any given situation. Jesus has saved me from even that. He is our story and he is our song. And that's why I believe the conversation about death and honesty and telling our story is an inherently Christian one. We do not have to muster the strength to do these things on our own volition. We hear those famous words from St. Paul in Romans 6. Can you pull those up for me? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Again and again, Jesus calls us into honesty about what death looks like and how necessary it is. And he gives us his blessed assurance. Jesus knows that when we remember our death, it brings our story to life. And when we deny our death, we deny ourselves the fullness of our grace. We deny ourselves the fullness of our story. So when I was a hospital chaplain, part of my responsibilities were to pray with families when their loved ones were taken off of life support. And if you've ever been present when people are taken off of life support, you know, the movies, it's always very quick for the person to die. It's not that quick in real life. It can take hours and sometimes even days. So many times when I attended these deaths, a spouse would be present. It was the elderly couples that haunted me the most. So much had existed between them years before their middle-aged children were even born, these two people had met and fallen dramatically in love. They had survived years of joy and heartache with one another. 
They had stories that we would never know about them. Who really knew their secrets and the experiences that had knit them together? So the first death I attended was for this elderly woman I had never met before. She had been dying of cancer for months, and I never experienced her as a conscious person. So I show up, and this, this woman is lying in bed, hooked up to all kinds of machines. Her husband and their adult children are there. They start to pull wires off of her, and it's a very slow process. So as we all stood in this room together, it became quickly obvious that the only relationship that mattered in that room was the one between the husband and the wife. It's like that around couples who are dying. It may be filled with lots of people, but there is an otherworldliness between the husband and wife, and everyone else is just a third wheel. So I'm standing there in the room, a little unsure of what to do. I mumbled through some prayers and offered a listening ear, but all I can remember from that day was the husband. Because as his wife slowly died, he was uncomfortably bent over the bed. I and mean, he had to be in his 80s. He was bent over the bed with his arms cradling her body. So we were all worried that he would pass out. I kept trying to encourage him to sit. His adult children kept literally kind of pushing chairs underneath him, almost knocking his knees out and saying, you have to sit, Dad, you have to sit. We're worried you're going to pass out. So finally, he had it with us. And he stood up and he turned around and he said, your mother always loved it when I held her. And so I'm going to hold her right now. And that was it. That was the moment their lives had come down to. This was the moment of the blessed assurance. The romance of when they first met, the wedding, the first baby, the second baby, the third, the fights about who would unload the dishwasher, the worries about how they would pay for college, the joys of being empty nesters, the devastating cancer diagnosis, his steadfastness, her pain. This was what her story, his story, their story had come down to. And he did not want to miss a minute of it. That moment was an incredible gift to me on a personal level. I think about it a lot. I remind myself sometimes that there will be a last time for me to hold my husband's hand, a last time to worry about how we're going to pay for college. Mostly, I try to remind myself of our deaths when we fight, which is easier than you might think. Um, I believe that in marriage, we can get very caught up in the moment. We are always telling one another, this is so in the zeitgeist, right? Be present in your relationships. Be present to the moment. Sometimes I think we would do well to be less present. <laughs> less present to the moment and more aware of the enormous space and time that is involved in a relationship defined by till death do us part. Our marriage story is not cake and rings and RSVPs. It is beautiful and difficult and living and dying. We miss out if we deny that death is a crucial part of our story. We miss out if we do not have the context of the cross to give our death life. 
I actually believe that remembering our death may be the most crucial part of our story together now. So people ask me a lot why I'm so involved in Mockingbird, and I could tell you all about how Mockingbird completely changed every relationship in my life, but what I want to do today is I want to talk a little bit about the first post I read on Mockingbird that made me go to a conference. So it was not an article from the New York Times. It was not a review of a Wes Anderson movie. Um, I fell in love with the message of Mockingbird when they posted a clip from Whitney Houston's funeral, because I'm highbrow like that, so. <laughs> um, this, is, uh, this is Tyler Perry's opening eulogy at Whitney Houston's funeral. God bless you. The Houston family, I, I, know this, I know this grief. It was Pat who introduced me to Whitney a while back, and she and I uh, sat in a restaurant in Atlanta, just the two of us, sat there talking for about an hour and a half, about four years ago. And during this time, she was telling me about her life, and I was very surprised at how candid and open and revealing she was as she was talking to me. And she would talk about some things that she had went through, some things that made her sad, some things that were tough. And as I would see her talk about this, I would see this heaviness come upon her. And I'm the type of person that when I would see this with anyone, I would just want to say something encouraging. But before I could get words out to encourage her, she would say, but the Lord. Yeah. And the conversation went on, the conversation went on. We would talk a little bit more. She'd go back into the sadness. And just when I'm about to step in, she would say, but my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his amazing grace. It was at that moment that I knew that I would do all I can to stand with her. And from that moment to now, I've been standing with the family and her, and I'm just completely thankful to God for all that he has done in her life. There are two constants that I know about Whitney Houston, and one is that there was a grace that carried, a grace that carried her from heaven down through Miss Sissy Houston, a grace that brought her up through singing, a grace that brought her, from what I understand, she wasn't even be, supposed to be able to speak, let alone sing, because of an incident that happened to her as a child, but there was a grace that kept on carrying her all the way through. The same grace led her all the way to the top of the charts, sold all of these albums, and just done some amazing things, won all these awards. She's sang for presidents, and there was a grace that kept on carrying her. That's one thing I know, and the other thing I know for sure, and this is more important than anything that she's ever done in her life, Whitney Houston loved the Lord. And, and in every conversation we had over these years, it was evident that she loved the Lord. She loved the Lord. And when I think about it, there's a scripture that keeps burning in my heart. I keep thinking about the Apostle Paul in Romans when he was talking about, I am persuaded that nothing shall separate me from the love of God. So what I know about it is that nothing separated her from the love of God. And if you look at what Paul was saying, he was describing her life so perfectly. He said, neither height, which meant no matter how far she went in the stratosphere, nothing separated her from the love.
neither height nor depth, no matter how much struggle, no matter what she had to go through, no matter what she had to walk through, it still wasn't enough to separate her from the love of God, nor principalities, nor power, nor things to present, nor things to come. Nothing was able to separate her from the love of God. So what I know about her is that she loved the Lord. And if there was a grace that carried her all the way through, it was the same grace that carried her home. Right? So there is Whitney Houston. She is telling her story and she is singing her song. And we know Whitney's story. We know her song. We know about her abusive marriage. We know that she was held captive by drug and alcohol addiction. And we know it was those things that killed her. I love what Tyler Perry says about their, their lunch together. He said that he wanted to do what we so often do when people are telling us about their pain and their struggle. When people share their stories, we want to give them advice. We want to tell them to up their game. We want to hand out bootstraps at the door, right? We don't want people to talk about the hard stuff, mostly because we don't want to deal with our own hard stuff. We don't want to face the fact that our lives are time-stamped. We want, desperately, to be the most crucial part of the narrative. We want it all to rest on our shoulders. We want to believe that we can fix everything that is wrong with our stories. But we are crushed under the weight of ourselves. Because our sins and sorrows and self-righteousness are too much to bear alone. But Whitney knew, even in her darkest hour, she knew she could not help herself. Even Whitney Houston, with all of her, her enormous success, even she knew that her story wasn't the story, that her song was not the song. She knew that her death was not the end of the narrative, but in so many ways, it was the beginning. She knew the blessed assurance of Jesus was where her life found comfort and solace and final rest. Your story cannot make it out alive. And in a world that begs us to be more, to justify our existence, to be the prettiest girl in the room and the most ambitious boy in the class, but Jesus, Whitney tells us, but the Lord, but my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his amazing grace, Jesus gives up his life to be our story, and his breath to be our song. Jesus rescues us in our death. We cannot make it out alive, and that is the best part of our story. Why don't we pray? Gracious and loving God, thank you for walking the hard way for dying for us and for loving us into redemption. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thank y'all.